0: Hello, this is Kurt Frankum, and many of you know me as the host of the Leading Saints podcast. But Leading Saints isn't just a podcast. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we strive to create quality leadership content for Latter-day Saints in order to help them be better prepared to lead. With this mission comes a lot of expense, and we need additional help to continue our efforts in the coming year. In order to exchange value for value, we have created the Core Leader Community. To become a core leader, all you have to do is become a subscribing donor, which might be a monthly recurring donation or even a quarterly or yearly donation. For those who become a core leader through a subscription donation, you have access to our core leader library, which includes additional recorded interviews not available to the general audience, access to all virtual summits, discounts on products and conferences, and access to a private core cast feed where you will hear additional leadership thought and behind-the-scenes happenings. We are a community of leaders making this happen, and we need you a part of this mission. Text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to become a core leader today, or visit leadingsaints.org. Merry Christmas, everyone. This is Kurt Frankham with the Leading Saints podcast. I welcome you back to another episode. If you're new to Leading Saints, we are a nonprofit organization. That produces this podcast. And our mission is to help Latter day Saints be better prepared to lead. And so, whether you're in a leadership capacity or not, I think you'll find some good content here. Now, we are rounding out the year here with just a few more episodes. In years past, I've actually taken a few weeks off during the holiday season in December, but there's just so many interviews out there and potential interviews. I could literally publish, if there's no limits on life, I could publish one interview every day and still have plenty of content to, uh, to go after. But I think many of you would not like that since uh, you'd probably get behind and never get around to the content. So we try and keep it at uh, once a week and that seems to uh, do us well. But uh, we're just going to plow through to the end of the year. Got some other great interviews uh, coming up and uh, begins with this one. This is actually a two-part interview. I interviewed Heather Choate and Shanda Miller in two separate interviews, and they are both mothers who uh, had quite traumatic events happen in their life related to their children or the, the birth of their children, which put them in a, a spot where they were in a lot of need. And I wanted to put together an episode around this, this uh, concept of as far as ministering to those who are going through very traumatic experiences or intense health crises that uh, where additional help is needed and how the ward stepped up and was able to help them out. Because I know there are individuals out there, whether it's happened now or in the near future, it may happen, unfortunately, where somebody in the ward just goes through a traumatic experience. And obviously, in our culture, we, we don't mind, you know, putting a meal together and taking over a casserole and, and delivering that. But sometimes when it's a, a very uh, lengthy recovery process or a, just a lengthy process in general, you sort of are not sure how to offer support. And so, these are two examples, fantastic examples of how individuals were supported through intense health battles, both either of themselves or of their children. And I want to give a shout out to uh, those individuals down in Pueblo, Colorado. That's where I interviewed Heather Choate. And uh, they were kind enough to to invite me down to uh, Pueblo and I did a fireside for their for their stake. and it was a lot of fun to, to meet a lot of the listeners in that area. And uh, so, shout out to you! I look forward. Hopefully, I get another chance to to visit Pueblo again. And of course, I'd be happy to visit anywhere in, in the country or the world. Whoever would have me. It's fun to get out and, and meet individuals in person. So let's jump into this episode, and I think you'll benefit from this, these inspiring stories. And hopefully. Take some mental notes about what you can minister to others who are going through traumatic experiences. So here's my interview with Heather Choate and Chanda Miller. Today, I find myself in Pueblo, Colorado, just south of Colorado Springs, Colorado. This, these are things I'm, I'm just learning as I'm visiting here and with uh, Heather Choate. How are you, Heather? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good. Now you are. You've lived in Pueblo for how long? Just about three years. Three years. So we're and, getting used to it too. <laughs> and when, where would you say you're originally from? Is there a, a place or?
1: Pretty much Colorado, but also grew up in Chicago and Ohio. Wow,
0: That's so a
1: little bit of everything.
0: But definitely not Utah. Never lived in Utah.
1: Only for school for oh, two okay. years. That was enough for us. <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice, nice. Well, I, I get it as a, as a Utah boy. I get it. But and uh, what what is it? Uh, you're a mother of eight children. Soon or, to be eight. soon to be eight. Yes. One is on the way. <laughs> So, did you always want to have a big family?
1: Not this big. Not this no. big. <laughs> it surprises me every nice. day.
0: <laughs> but hey, there's always maybe one room for one more, right? It just oh, feels like. Oh, yeah, way. we'll see. Nice, nice. And uh, what, what brought you here to Pueblo?
1: My husband is a pilot. So, oh, really? we relocated for, he teaches Air Force cadets how to fly. And nice. so, we came out here to experience the wind and the brown <laughs> palette. Yeah. <laughs> if you have. Looked outside here. Yeah. It's very, very dead, very right. brown.
0: Yeah, and walking in the, the the building here, I was like, "Man, hairspray must do really well here because it's just like wind is always blowing, right? Just is <laughs> constantly blowing." So you have a unique story that we're we're going to dive into. Where would you say this story begins?
1: Pre-existence. No, yeah. <laughs> we won't go wow.
0: back that far. <laughs> this may take some time. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no. So yeah, in 2014, we were expecting our sixth baby. And when I was 10 weeks pregnant, I noticed a lump on my left breast and it was getting increasingly larger. So I went to my first appointment, expressed some concern to my midwife. Unfortunately for us, she took my concern serious and it turned out to be an aggressive form of breast cancer that was hormone sensitive. So oh. the hormones from the pregnancy that were helping feed my baby were also feeding. The cancer.
0: Oh my goodness! So, so, do you suspect that this may have been there before you got pregnant, and but that the hormone shift really sped up the growth? Who knows? Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
1: wow. Yeah.
0: And so, what what went through? I mean, getting that diagnosis, where how do you start to piece that all together and and, and understand what they're telling you?
1: It was very shocking. I was only twenty nine, and up until that point, all the doctors, the people that did the biopsy, were saying you're so young, you don't have any history of cancer. There's no way. It's probably totally, you know, totally benign, no big deal. Uh And so when my midwife called and told me, Heather, it's cancer, it was just shocking. It was something I never expected I would be facing in my life.
0: Yeah. And I would get, I guess your mind quickly goes to the baby. I mean, what what does that mean for this baby? Exactly.
1: Yeah. We were living in Southern Colorado and I was on the deck of our backyard. It was just a beautiful, like, July day, just gorgeous out there in the pine trees and the kids were all playing. And I just felt like, wow, the world just suddenly crashed down around Mm me. And what does this mean, right, for this baby? Because just a few days ago, we were only excited about having a child. We weren't thinking that anything like this
0: was going to come our way. Yeah, especially after, I mean, this is your sixth child, so you had five pregnancies prior to this that uh, were great moments, right? Great experiences. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So then does it shift to more intense medical treatment, I would imagine? I mean, do they, they refer to you to a specific doctor to really, did they want to do surgery regardless if it was cancerous or not?
1: Yeah. So we first met with some experts there in Southern Colorado, and we were told immediately that the first thing we should do is to abort the baby. To save my life, and that if we didn't, I was risking my life. And that other cases like this haven't ended well in what they've seen because we need to stop the hormones from the pregnancy that are yeah. feeding this really aggressive cancer. that already spread to my lymph nodes. And that would just immediately to me wasn't the right option. Yeah. <laughs> it just didn't resonate with my heart and my soul. And my husband was right on board with that. We prayed about it, of course, and felt. Yeah, we're going to keep the baby, and we're going to find some way, even though no one there had an option for us, that we would make it through as best as we could. But obviously, yeah. having to turn it over to the Lord in, in a very profound and scary <laughs> way. Yeah.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, and I would imagine, from the medical standpoint, that the doctors are see that this this tumor is being fed by hormones in your body, so they want to turn those hormones off, and and yeah. you know, stopping the pregnancy would would do that. But did they say, if you do keep it, there's some other options or was it just, I no, mean, there were no, no options. Like we the to traditional chemo doctors. and things like that. Is was not an option.
1: Right. No, uh, we just kept hearing from everyone, every doctor, every specialist. And then through prayer, we considered some different alternative.
0: Yeah. Because and, as far as a traditional medical doctor, they're looking at you and saying, if you keep the child, you will die. I mean, there's just that's, that's, that's what just what's going to happen. You'll both die, I, I, would, I would assume, right? Right. Yeah. It wouldn't end well. Yeah. And then we were led to
1: find an oncologist in Denver, which wasn't far from where we lived, who's actually one of the top five in the world. So I know that that was just wow. guidance. So
0: <laughs> Relatively just down the street. I mean, just... Well, yeah.
1: about seven hours away right, from yes, us, but, but yeah.
0: <laughs> you could drive there in a relatively... That right. Within thing. a day. Yeah. 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 Wow. And, and yeah. so they get, that oncologist gave you good news or, or gave you hope anyways?
1: So she said... <laughs> you know, for you, I know this is like the end of the world, but I treat young women with cancer all the time, especially pregnant women. And given where you are in this stage, here's what we need to do. And so she outlined a course of chemotherapy that would be safer during pregnancy so that, you know, the placenta helps block it and then doing a complete left mastectomy. So an intense surgery while pregnant, because Mm -hmm. those were the things that were needing to happen so that the cancer didn't spread and get too aggressive, too fast. Yeah. And then then we uh, so we went through that. So I was big pregnant and bald <laughs> at the same wow. time. <laughs> wow. Yeah.
0: And I'm just curious like as you make this decision, you know, to to keep the baby and and see if you can fight the cancer in, in some other way, did as far as just from a spiritual decision, uh, uh, receiving an answer through prayer. I mean, I would imagine from time time you doubted yourself or you thought Maybe what am I doing or did you go back and forth or was it did you feel pretty certain throughout throughout that experience?
1: No, I felt certain throughout it and hmm. I was really grateful for that. In fact, yeah. I'd say it was actually one of the easiest decisions I've ever made. I feel like sometimes some of the smaller, I don't know, should I do this or should I do that decisions yeah, yeah. are are harder, but there were definitely moments where I felt like giving up or feeling like I'm not capable of mm-hmm. doing this. It's too much. There's too much fear, there's too much uncertainty. A lot of fears about the baby and being very protective. <laughs> <laughs> Of keeping her safe. And there was definitely some turmoil within me about, you know, why does she have to be involved? Because she's just this little innocent life. You know? And those motherly instincts just to protect her and try to keep her from any harm. I'm one of those people I wouldn't even barely take a Tylenol (laughs) when I was pregnant before. (laughs) And now I'm getting this kind of like adriamycin and cytoxin, this red chemotherapy that's really intense and makes you very, very sick. Uh-huh. Um, and thinking, I'm putting that into my body and how is that going to affect my baby?
0: Yeah. So how did it, how, what did they tell you how it would uh, impact the child?
1: Yeah. They said that the placenta blocks most of it. And hmm. so that there's very, very little risk to the baby. Obviously, surgery is never something you want to do an <laughs> in intense yeah. surgery when you're expecting unless you have to. And yeah. in this case- we felt like we needed to. And I'm glad we did because the cancer was still active when they actually did that surgery. And I remember probably the, maybe the most faith promoting, but also the hardest moment because those always go hand in hand, right? (laughs) It's always the hardest moments that are then the most faith promoting was being wheeled back into surgery at 28 weeks pregnant. I'd just gone through the four rounds of chemotherapy and I couldn't be with my husband. (laughs) He couldn't go with me back there, obviously. And so that moment of just feeling, you know, like I'm on my own and calling out to Heavenly Father to feel his love and feeling the Savior's love. And in some way, I felt a little bit of a kinship to Moses' mother, Hmm. which I'd never really thought of that before, but how she had to let her baby go and put her child into the hands of the Lord and put even her child into dangerous circumstances, putting him onto the Nile River, (laughs) you know, there's crocodiles and who knows what else is going on. Wow. Um, yeah, that's with great. that. And I, I remember feeling like that and writing about that, that, you know, I'm just putting this child into your hands, Heavenly Father, and just that surrender of, I can't protect this baby as much as I want to. And I would do anything to protect it, but I can't. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to turn it over to your hands and just let it go. I think that moment right there of just letting go and turning it over to him completely was a profound experience of surrender. Yeah and of faith and and humility. (laughs) I'm just completely turning over to him.
0: Yeah. You know, it is that the concept of surrender in our trials. I mean, that, I feel like in my personal life that, that the Lord is constantly taking back to that is, I see that you're trying to control the situation. You can't. So just give it to me. Right. And that there's such a bond that we build with our savior when we get in that state. And, And it's not easy. I mean, there's a journey there, but it's a journey that the Lord takes us on that it's beautiful, right?
1: Yeah. And we find just that peace and that comfort. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, well, whatever it is, it is. And, yeah. and I'll be okay. And it's, yeah. So correct. did
0: they did they ever consider like, if your baby's at 28 weeks, uh, I mean, a viable pregnancy, I mean, that's still pretty early. Did they consider taking the baby early and, and, and handling like they that? They had to. They, they were had monitoring. To. The okay. whole
1: team was monitoring <laughs> gotcha. the baby the entire time.
0: So, as long as the treatment and such wasn't impacting the child, they felt, you know, obviously that's the best place for it to be right. is, uh, in the uterus and, and growing yeah. that way. So, um, interesting. So, 28 weeks you're wheeled in and uh, for this intense sur- surgery and uh, and then you wake up. Yeah. And what do you remember from, from that point?
1: I'd asked my husband beforehand that just to put my hand on my belly because I wanted to know. I mean, that would be as a parent, we don't even know like if she would be born because mm. neither of us would actually be. Conscious or there. Yeah. And so just to give me that assurance as I'm kind of waking up that the baby's there. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the first thing I recognize and feeling that immense relief. Like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. She yeah. made it through okay. I made it through okay. We're all good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and had you started chemo at this at this point, or was this after the surgery that you started chemotherapy?
1: Yeah, no, we did the four rounds before oh, okay. surgery.
0: So you you had lost your hair at this mm-hmm. point and and now going into this surgery that would hopefully uh, move you to the next phase of recovery.
1: Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah, I actually got um,
1: whistled at when I was bald and pregnant. Oh, you did. <laughs> I never whistled thought that at. would happen in my life. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> that was great.
0: Um, and uh, so, at that point, after the surgery, what, what, is that when did you feel more confidence that this is this is going to work out? I mean, because as far as that surgery was concerned, it was a success. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Then it was just kind of hunkering down, letting my body recover um, for the rest of the pregnancy. And didn't do any more treatment until after the baby was born, and yeah. then she was born in January of 2015, healthy, whole, over eight pounds, full wow. head of hair. She had more hair than I did. Wow! <laughs> and uh, now she's a spunky, vivacious four-year-old. Yeah, that will tell you off and well, make her mad. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: So I was just going to mention I have a four-year-old that was born in January of 2015. Okay. So yeah. I I know that phase, and uh, <laughs> spunky is is a good good term to to use there. So. From that point, then you were able to finish the pregnancy and now you had this child, but you still had recovery a- ahead of you, right? I mean, you, now you had to stick yeah. around for this child, right?
1: Yeah. Then actually treatment got really intense after that. Um, yeah. Six days after I went back in for surgery and then went back in for chemotherapy six weeks after her birth. That was more intense yeah. <laughs> uh, physically for me and draining. Um And I think this is the part where it the The ward and the support from the leadership really came into play um, because I had a newborn yeah. and we had five other children, mm-hmm. and I'm going through intense chemotherapy and followed that in the summer by radiation and more chemotherapy that lasted a total of about three years. Yeah, um, and so there were just incredible miracles at one of the most challenging moments in you know my life or my husband's life as we had to try to manage. having a young family and responsibilities with this really intense, you know, cancer that we didn't expect, we never would have planned on having that, you know?
0: Yeah. And and obviously it's more than just bringing a few meals over for, you know, the new baby in the ward, uh, you know, bring the family a few meals and calling you good. I mean, this was maybe some extra support. And I want to kind of jump into that because I think there are leaders out there, um, relief side presences that you know, there's someone in the world that faces such a traumatic experience in whether it's health or or others that it's sort of intimidating to even approach that and ask if you can help because there's so much, so many miracles needed in these situations that, I mean, is a casserole really going to make a difference? Is a visit really going to make a difference, right? And of course, we still do those things, but mm-hmm. you just feel so bad leaving and <laughs> and sort of uh, abandoning this person in this, in this thick trial. So, I'm just curious, like, what stories moments or what principles could you teach other leaders if they do have somebody in their ward that's in this intense, intense Mm -hmm. stage?
1: Yeah. For myself, I can totally relate to that feeling of, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. And it's really uncomfortable. And I could sense that from some people. My husband's a joker, so he always (laughs) helps break the ice about (laughs) things and would like rub my bald head in church and, you know, I don't know, (laughs) try (laughs) to make it approachable, I guess. So that helped, but I was a more independent kind of personality, and I'm always the one that I feel like I should be the one serving. I should be the one right? bringing yeah. the dinners and and doing these things, and I'm not the one that really needs help. So to have that completely reversed was challenging and very humbling, and it helped me realize that you know our Savior wasn't just the one that was always serving others. He allowed people to serve him. Yeah, you know th- they washed his feet and they anointed his head, and there were women and and men that tended to his, you know, his clothing and his meals. And, you know, he allowed people to serve him. It wasn't just the other way around. And so that was a profound awakening moment for me to realize that it goes both ways. And I need to have that valve open. But as far as leadership goes, I think when you feel that fear of I don't know what to do, and there's just uncomfortableness about intensity of emotions too, maybe our natural inclination is not know what to do. So we don't do anything. And just really be aware of where that's coming from, whether that's coming from our own insecurity or if it's even coming from, you know, the adversary trying to prevent us from really understanding someone. But I found that just for myself, when I ask Heavenly Father, what can I do? What do they really need? Or I ask them, you know, I genuinely want to help you. I I really care about you. Then the answers always come. And for me, that looked like Relief Society and Ministering Sisters that not only brought meals, which was needed because (laughs) after surgery and all those things, it was definitely needed. But they arranged someone to come clean my house every single week for months because I was too sick to do that. And they came and watched my children sometimes when it was too hard. And so it was kind of a combination of me being humble enough to say what I really need and allow them to help instead of being resistant or thinking, oh no, I can I can clean my toilets myself. <laughs> I've yeah, always done right. that. I don't need, I'm not that kind of person. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The stigma I had to get over in my own mind and to see the joy that it gave them helps me realize that it was okay. Yeah, <laughs> This is actually blessing us both. And then the, the the priesthood side of giving blessings and being available to help with the children, take my sons to events if they needed to, if my husband wasn't ab- available. And then even our, our bishop of truly... Seeing what we needed, my husband did struggle with knowing how to run his business that he mm. owned at the time and provide financially, which is his job. You know, yeah. like, that's his role. And then being there for me with this newborn. And our bishop really gave the openness, just the option to him to say, hey, you know, if you need financial help, you need to be with your wife right now. We will support you in that and we will make that happen. And that helped take some of the burden and pressure off my husband. And some of that feeling of guilt about not, you know, he didn't work for about four months and he was there for me and the baby when we needed it the most. And I think the ward really recognized that us as a family, like that was the most important thing was that we needed to be there together. And so they just basically opened up their, their hearts, their time, you know, the ward budget even, yeah. you know, to make sure that that happened because that was the most needed
2: yeah.
0: thing yeah, for us. You talk about, you know, getting over those stigmas even from the the male perspective. I mean, a, a man who really probably pr- prided himself in providing for the family, and now that's got really complicated, right? No sure. fault to him or, or anybody. And to have a bishop just say to them, "Hey, you understand that you're not going to lose anything. Like we're, we've got your back, you know, yeah. financially." And uh, and I know every member in the church would more be happy to hear that the fast offering funds are using for, are being used for the mm-hmm. family like yours who's going through so much, and so. But nonetheless, there's sort of this, I would imagine, this humbling process for your husband of saying like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll let you serve me. Mm-hmm. And that, that was probably difficult, right? Yeah. Any other stories or anecdotes that come that come to mind that really make that moment memorable, that really uplifted you, sustained you in this dark moment of, of your recovery?
1: It's an interesting one. It's one I actually don't have a memory of, and I'll, I'll share why <laughs> this okay. one stands okay. out the most. So, when my, my daughter Kiri was born the one that I was going through cancer with, we actually all had influenza. It was back in 2015 when it was really an intense uh, version Uh that came through. And my kids all got it. My husband got it and I got it. So I was not only... I went into labor with a fever of 103. It was just just incredible. My husband had a sinus infection and double ear infection and all my kids were very, very, very sick at home. And so... I don't even remember this moment, but I had one of the sweet sisters who told me that she loved snuggling my seventeen month old Naomi when she was sick. So she was at my home and I didn't even know this. This is why it stands out to me. These angels on on heaven, right? Angels in earth sorry. In heaven and on earth. And she held my little one and a half year old for hours with this poor little sick baby with no thought of herself about getting sick and was just there and i don't i i was so out of it i didn't even know <laughs> that she had done that and to her that was a very sweet memory of being able to comfort this little sick child and to me that just that level of compassion and and kindness and she got no recognition for me cuz i didn't even know about it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know until years later it was i don't know just so incredibly stirring to my soul that people would be willing to do that yeah, at that kind of level, yeah. and all hours of the night, all hours of the day, simply just there and giving of their time and, and their help as much as they could.
0: Yeah, and it really is just in in the little things. I mean, not that I want to equate that to a little thing, but I'm just having somebody to sit with your sick daughter because you were you weren't available to do that, and that goes a long way for that that sick daughter, for, you know, for any any child. And um, that that's one thing is I talk with individuals who've gone through trials, intense trials like this that you know, it is easy for other individuals to sort of give you space and, you know, give you space to recover and and rest and those things. And others that sort of interject themselves and just with no clear purpose of why or what they're going to do, but I'm just here, you know, I'm going to sit and I enjoy being with your children. I I enjoy playing with them. And and, uh, just in those little things, just being present, I think is the, the principle that comes back time and time again, as I hear these stories of if a ward council or Leadership that feels like they they should they could support or ministering brothers or sisters to just to be present often and uh, regardless if you have a casserole in your hand or something to do but just that presence there and and uh, when when you're tired of them or need to go rest you, you'll communicate that and right. off they go right so <laughs> I think obviously this is a vast story and and you've written a book about it right.
1: Yeah. Okay. I, I I kept a journal during that time and then I
0: since published it. Oh, nice. So if people really want to dig it, I mean, this this wasn't obviously just one weekend that all this <laughs> yeah. transpired. So anything else we're missing about this story, about service, leadership, anything else that would we, you want to mention before we, we wrap up?
1: I just feel like, and we hear this all the time, but it really is where it comes from. It's just listening to the spirit, letting it guide you. And that love that our Heavenly Father has for us can be if the word is transmuted, but you know, brought to us through the spirit and it will guide us and help us know how to comfort others, how to humble ourselves to be comforted, <laughs> mm-hmm. and will provide what is needed because he's very aware of us and he loves us in our good moments, in our comfortable moments, and in our hardest, darkest moments as yeah.
0: well. The last question I have is what encouragement would you, what final encouragement would you give to a leader who uh, Relief Society president will, will be very specific, uh, who is really wants to figure out a way to serve someone going through a traumatic trial.
1: Yeah. Again, just praying and going back to feeling the spirit. And when you feel that love the Heavenly Father has for another human, then your heart and your mind is opened and you'll find the solutions that you need and that they need to be able to get through whatever it is that they're going through you know, he is the way, he's the master teacher, and there's really no other life hack or mm-hmm. <laughs> technique that can come close to that guidance of, of the Holy Ghost and our Heavenly Father's love.
0: Today, I have an old friend in my in my presence, it's not because you're old, Chanda. It's because we go way back to <laughs> the Lee Ward. Back. Shanda Miller. She was uh, one of one of the many f- in the Lee Ward where I was bishop. And uh, so, how was it with me as bishop? I mean, be honest. It okay. was awesome. Oh, of course. go on, go no, on. It
1: was true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it was it was a fun time. I think it was. You were like our family. We we're all sort of just these young families. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't. Both of us started out in that ward without kids. Yep. And uh, we were asked to do things that uh, were beyond our our ability at times. It beyond saved, our right?
3: ability, yes. Uh, I
0: think <laughs> your husband Chris was he was uh, was he my clerk or maybe a different? I think he, he was. He, he sort of moved through a lot of those callings. He did. Yeah. yeah, he did. And I see that the Lee Ward is and many of those inner city wards is sort of they prepare some younger people to hopefully serve in more dynamic responsibilities in the future. So I'm sure you'll have many more to. I'm in. sure. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, obviously I, I know a little bit about you, but just to put you into context, uh, just give us a brief explanation of your background, who you are. and
3: Okay. Well, I grew up in a little town in Utah, Burgum City, Utah. I served a mission in Chicago. My husband and I have been married for 13 years now. We've got three kids and just living life. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and, and you, uh, we, we've been married almost 14 years. So we're sort of on the same uh, plan here, but it, just like we did, we had a lot of fertility issues and things. And that was, yep. uh, it seemed like a lot in that ward. And maybe just because I was Bishop, I knew of everybody who's having some of those it struggles, did seem but, like there were quite a few yeah. though.
3: Yeah. We had six years of infertility.
0: Nice. Then finally baby comes through various fertility options. We right?
3: had, yep. IVF. So both of our pregnancies were through in vitro fertilization.
0: And that's when Lila came. Yep. Lila came. And you had her right as you were leaving the ward, right?
3: Yeah. We left when I was eight
0: months pregnant. Oh, wow.
3: I don't recommend moving when you're eight (laughs) months pregnant.
0: (laughs) Noted. And uh, how old is Lila now? She's five. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And then... Was it did that struggle to have kids continue after Lila?
3: It did. So we had a failed cycle in between Lila and the mm. twins and then we got pregnant with the twins the next time.
0: And with IVF and they were IVF yep, babies, all right? IVF. And yeah. that's it increases the odds of multiple It does. Right?
3: It does increase the odds. In fact I hear now that they are only implanting one embryo at a time. Oh really? To try to decrease that. <laughs>
0: Too many reality shows or babies or <laughs> That's cool. So, uh, so you found out you were, what did you think when you found out you're having twins? I mean, was it,
3: we were thrilled. Yeah, We wanted twins with Lila actually when the first time we got pregnant. I mean, we didn't know what we didn't know at that And we thought, well, whatever, let's mm-hmm. just jump into it and get this done. And so we were really excited when we found out we were having twins. Yeah. Like a dream come true.
0: And then at, at some point during the pregnancy, there's a surprise and it sort of takes a turn that's now impacting your life to this day. Maybe elaborate yeah. on that story.
3: Okay. Yeah, I would love to. So we did we were pregnant with twins and everything was totally normal. All of my appointments were going well. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary at all. And when I was so 23 and 3 weeks pregnant, which is not quite age of viability, I started bleeding and I started having Labor pains, and I was telling myself that I wasn't having labor pains, mm-hmm. but we went to OB emergency just to be yeah, safe, sure, and when we got there, they told me that I was dilated to a six mm-hmm. and that we would be having the twins that day. So when you are twenty three weeks gestation and you have not hit the age of viability, they before they will move forward in any way, you have to talk to a neonatologist because, They have to tell you that the chances of survival at that age are less than 10%. Oh my goodness. So we were told that the chances of survival and twins take it even lower, but Mm. the chances of survival for either one of them was 10% less than and less than 2% chance of them coming, you know, at the end of whatever it was medically without severe neurological disorders. Mm. So we had to decide, they told us we had to decide, we could decide to continue to labor and to do everything to save these children, or we could treat it as a spontaneous miscarriage.
0: Mm. And that involve just letting it take its course and yep. and the babies survive or they don't, right?
3: They would not survive. Okay. So they would, the only way that they do survive at that gestation is with intensive medical intervention. Oh, okay. So they would have just allowed them to come. Mm. We hold them for a while. They pass away.
0: Wow. Wow. And was that, I mean. It was. What, yeah. what goes through your mind in those, those processes? <laughs> I mean.
3: Well, I don't know. I don't know. Because it almost was, it was traumatic. Mm-hmm. There's not really another word for it. it. We were kind of in shock. And of course, we didn't question which way we were going to go. We we immediately knew we were going to fight for their lives, that they they needed to have a chance. We had already fought so hard to get pregnant, mm-hmm. so many years of infertility. So for us, it really wasn't a, I mean, it was a choice obviously, but it didn't feel like a choice to us. It was the only course of action for us yeah. to move forward.
0: Yeah. And then they, they come pretty quick or is.
3: So they were, we, they told us that we were going to have the babies that day, but I feel really strongly that when we chose life, that's when the miracles started happening mm-hmm. And they were able to stay in until exactly 24 weeks gestation. So 24 and 0, that's 16 weeks early for you listeners who may not know. And so that's four months. (laughs) It's crazy. But then we had, I started going into active labor again, and they took me in for an emergency C-section because that was the best chance of survival for both babies. So I had an emergency C-section. I was not able to even see either one of them. Mm. Before they took them immediately to the NICU, they passed them through the window. And so Savannah, five days after she was born, was transferred to Primary Children's Hospital for a surgery. She had her first surgery at five days old. And Memphis was transferred two weeks after he was born for the same surgery.
0: Mm. And when, when did you get to see him?
3: So because I had a C-section, I could not see them for two days wow. after they were born.
0: Long two days, it I It was bet.
3: a very long two days, and it was a really difficult two days because I think that there is a, I don't know, human reaction at times to where if we don't know what's going to happen, we had been told so many terrible statistics. I didn't know that I was ever going to see them alive. Mm. And so there was this struggle between do I attach or do I not? Oh, yeah. How much do I protect myself yeah, here? Yeah. And so it was almost good that I had that two days. It was incredibly long. It was excruciating, but it was really nice to have that time to kind of get my head straight and no, we're fighting for their lives. That's always been the choice. I'm their mom. We love them with all our hearts. We just have to go forward.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. So, and I don't want to. Uh, we'll speed up the story a little bit, timeline, because there could be a Savannah Memphis podcast about oh, yes, every day be. of their life, right? <laughs> yeah. So maybe just take us. Uh, just because spoiler alert, that they're alive and well today yep. at, at two and a yep. half years old. Two and a half. Good. So maybe take us up to today as far as some big mile markers that, that took place.
3: So big mile markers. They are alive and well, which is great. Mm-hmm. They have had so Memphis spent eight months at Primary Children's Hospital. And Savannah spent seven, and Savannah has had 12 surgeries up to date. Uh, Memphis is having his 11th on Thursday. So we we are still very involved with the hospital. We have six or seven specialists each that we follow with, and we have many different therapies. Memphis is deaf, and he's considered blind, although he's not quite blind Mm. yet. We're hoping he doesn't get to that point. Both of them have cerebral palsy, and Savannah has hydrocephalus and a shunt. So we have a lot going on, but life's good.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so with cerebral palsy, I, I interact with a few individuals with that have been diagnosed with cerebral palsy, a lot of times they mentally they develop normally, yeah. but physically the limitations are obviously if, if they're deaf, they're, that's going to limit their progress mm-hmm. in, in learning and so forth. But is that what you understand, that mentally they're... Very typical two and a half year olds, all considering?
3: They are not typical. They're severely delayed. Mm. They're probably about a year delayed in their development. And their growth is, of course, really delayed as well. They were in the hospital for a really long time Mm. and they were born at a pound and a half each. So they have a lot of making up to do still. But we are hoping that they will get to that point. It seems perhaps a little less likely as time goes on, that they'll totally typically develop. But we've been told that a lot of things wouldn't happen that have been happening. So we're just moving
0: forward. Yeah. When these situations, (laughs) I mean, in the the long term and with hindsight in the future, you really, you realize that, you know, they, how much they can develop beyond what you may have expected. Right. Even with these limitations, physical limitations.
3: Yeah. We were told that Savannah would never walk, that she would never talk, that she would probably be in a vegetative state. Mm and we she's not walking so she does have a walker and braces that help her get around. Oh, wow, that's great. But she is starting to talk. So we I mean and she's very social and interacts just like a you know, yeah. she just wants to play and have yeah. fun. So we just leave all that stuff behind yeah. and just move forward.
0: So did, did they ever get to a point where doctors can confidently say that, you know, that regardless of their limitations, they will grow and develop. They're not going to have, you know, you're not constantly worrying if they're going to pass or take a turn for the worse, right? Or is that hard to say day to day?
3: It's hard to say. Wow. They have a lot of complications still. I mean, we're uh, definitely past the point of, are they going to live or are they going to die? Yeah. Thank goodness. But It's hard for them to say. Nobody will even say
0: anything. And we,
3: we have to just leave that aside. We can't even think about it. We just move forward.
0: I mean, you just live day to day on faith. I mean, which we all do to some extent, but it's never like staring us in the face like that is a lot of the time.
3: Well, I mean, even though it is staring us in the face, you get to a place that it's normal. Yeah. You can't live in a place where it's like (laughs) hyper, you're hyper aware of it all the time. It's too stressful. Yeah. So your brain kind of normalizes whatever it is that mm-hmm. you're whatever it is you're dealing yes. with.
0: Well, for the purpose of, of this episode, I wanted to you know, I was intrigued by your story. And I've been you uh, know, you set up I think early on you set up a Facebook page mm-hmm. uh where we could follow the yeah. what what's it called? Like the it's adventures of the
3: adventures of Memphis and Savannah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And adventures it has been, right? Yes. <laughs> and so it's been fun sort of monitoring it casually through uh, you know, your different Facebook posts and, and whatnot. But I, I also want to, obviously, this is a leadership audience that's listening. Right. And I'm trying to, think. I remember, you know, even in our ward, the Lee ward, there's a few instances that happen. I remember one uh, seven-year-old boy died and here I am, you know, this young bishop thing. I don't, I don't even know where to start, right? And so right. sometimes these traumatic trials come into the lives of members of, of a ward, whether they're in your relief society or ward in general. And you just kind of don't know what to do other than show up with casseroles on the porch and and soon, I'm, you know, your your fridge gets full of casseroles, and then it's like, what what's next? So, I'd love to just take these examples and see what we can learn from your experience, that, as far as uh, what what really was a blessing to you that, that how your ward stepped in, and those that surround loved ones that surrounded you, with just understanding how can we better help those that are going through a significant trial in their life, and. Obviously, according to Mosiah eighteen mourn with those that mourn, you know, and, and really jump in and help. So, where does your mind take you as far as what really stood out in this time where you needed a lot of support? Almost, I mean, more than you could ever imagine. And right. how do you manage that, or how do you, you know, where where, where does your mind take you with that?
3: Well, it was completely unexpected, mm-hmm. so we didn't have time to prepare or to talk to Relief Society or Bishop or anything, you know, and have a plan. And we had never been people that had really needed a lot of support in the past. So it was completely new territory for us. But I do remember within the first few days of me coming home from the hospital, our relief society president sat on her on our couch and she said, "I'm not leaving until we know how we can help you." Because there <laughs> wow. there was just we just didn't even know what we didn't know at that uh-huh. point. We had no idea. And It just morphed and evolved over time. So I think sometimes it's important to remember that when a member is facing a traumatic situation, sometimes they don't even know what they need. Yeah. You're being asked, what do you need? What do you need? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what I need. Yeah. (laughs) Because your brain is so many different places and you're trying to deal with what's right in front of you. Ultimately, we were able to set it up so that the ward took Lila, our older daughter, and they had 14 different people that would watch her. So it was like a two-week rotation for a couple hours. It was probably four or five hours a day so that I could be at the NICU with the twins. And that was amazing. That yeah. was huge. I didn't have to pay for childcare, which we couldn't afford in this new situation. <laughs> yeah,
0: you yeah, had yeah, other things to worry about.
3: And of course, there were the regular things. There were the meals that were brought in and and none of that is not appreciated. The meals and the yeah. yard work, all of that's appreciated. But I loved the approach of, of thinking outside the box. Mm. And so the help with childcare that came. And then we had these sweet kids in our neighborhood that wanted to help and didn't know what to do. And so they put on a bake sale for us and then gave us the proceeds mm. or, We also had, when the twins came home, I thought that being in the hospital would be the hardest part. But when they came home and I was the main caregiver, my husband, of course, is amazing, but he was at work. Mm -hmm. So I was the caregiver for these kids that had previously had 24 hour watch with nurse and doctors and all kinds of specialists right at their fingertips. And then it was me. And Our son was still really, really sick. He probably shouldn't have come home when he did. Mm. And so my Relief Society president had somebody coming in the morning and somebody coming in the evening every single day to help just to monitor how I was doing, what was going on in the home. Did someone need to take Lila? Did someone need to let me take a nap? Did so, you know, whatever it was.
0: So, so maybe explain how that, like so in the morning, seven <laughs> o'clock, like someone knocks on your door and you're like, hi, was, sister Smith, uh, come it, on in. It
3: was closer to 10. Okay. Uh, but yes, it was, and, and it was almost every single day. Somebody would just show up.
0: And was that, I mean, because uh, I think our natural tendency is thinking, well, I'll just get in the way. Like maybe she doesn't need me. And I mean, maybe sometimes you didn't need them. They just sort of stood, stood by. Is that...
3: I think sometimes I definitely freaked people out. Oh, yeah. Some of the medical things that we had to do are not typical, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. But um, it—I always needed somebody mm. because there was always more than what I
0: could do. Yeah.
3: But at that point, I mean, it's eight months at this point since this has started.
0: Since they've been born. They're, Since they've uh-huh. been
3: born, and the ward has been there every single step of the way. So I don't really feel like asking for more help. Huh. So help just showing up, that was awesome. Interesting. Help just showing up was awesome.
0: You know, this is that's an interesting dynamic because we can unintentionally put the burden on those that are going through this by waiting for them to ask for it rather than <laughs> just assuming and saying, "Listen." <laughs> Sally's going to be there at 10 tomorrow, whether you like it or not. Right. uh, She can watch Netflix if you want her to, or she can chip in. Right. Right. That's interesting.
3: And the war did eventually. And again, with the thinking outside the box. So I had this, one of the therapists for the kids came and she saw me probably completely overwhelmed and in over my head and (laughs) ready to cry. And she called on her own, bless her heart. She called the Utah Doula Association. Hmm. And asked if there were any postpartum doulas that could help out volunteer wise. And my relief society president happened to be there while one of them was in our home helping and she saw all that she was doing. Well, then she went to the bishop that very night and said, we have to pay for those doulas to keep coming because they're saving her. Hmm. I mean, she saw it. Yeah. And then she acted on it and I didn't have to ask for it. Wow. They just did it for us. And it really, it really saved us. Yeah
0: to have that extra help. And and that's interesting because that, if it would have, I mean, having the doula there and seeing her just model the help you really need, I think that the lay individual wouldn't, under, they'd be like, I can change a diaper here or there, but right. it was a lot more. And so seeing that you mm-hmm. sort of helped them see how intense the help how was in, needed.
3: Right. How intensely the help was needed. And so that, I mean, it really saved us when mm-hmm. they did that and, and they kept they had a postpartum partum doula coming at night two times a week, so we could actually sleep, wow. which was amazing. I bet. And it was then, one thing to have a
0: newborn, let alone two, let alone two that have special two needs. Two that right? have
3: special needs. And my sweet Memphis, when he came home, if he he's a still on oxygen, but when he came home, if he if he rubbed his oxygen cannulas out of his nose, he had thirty seconds before he was turning blue and oh rigid, goodness. and I couldn't sleep because yeah, you can't
0: just relax. Could, right. And even if you try, right.
3: <laughs> so they, they paid for someone to come watch the kids at night for two, for two nights a week for about four months. Wow,
0: so the ward paid for that. The ward wow, paid that's for that. Fantastic.
3: It was amazing. Wow. It really did save us.
0: Wow. Anything else as far as that initial stage of where there's sort of this stage you go through where the ward is trying to figure out how to help, right? Cause they could come to you and say, well, you know, how can we help and, or what do you need? And at the end of the day, what you need is two healthy kids, right? right. They, they can't do that. <laughs> uh, anything else as far as just understanding, discovering what it is you need?
3: I think just being open to um, kind of moving along with us, I guess mm-hmm. our needs changed and, and we didn't know at the beginning. I mean, I think it's good that I didn't know at the beginning that at the end of it, we would have board members cleaning our house. They fed us for over a year.
0: They wow. fed us. And so you never had to cook a meal for a you
3: are, Well, we did, but I mean, they really took care of yeah. us. And when we were in the hospital, it was gift cards because we weren't eating at home. We were grabbing whatever was in between us and the hospital. Yeah. And they just took care of us. Yeah. So I think just being aware and I think what helped us is that our Relief Society president was literally in our space all the time. She was just there and she could observe what we needed, even if we couldn't put a voice to it mm. so she could see it. And oh, when, Now they need this. Like she was just now constantly
0: checking in. I mean, what did that yeah, look like? She
3: was at our house probably at least once a month or once a week for months. <laughs> mm. She would just stop by usually with a male, but she would just stop by, just hang out for a while. And I think one of the key things with that was that she would sincerely talk to us. It wasn't just a checking into what else do you need? It was, mm. how can we really help you? What is it you really need? And there was so much sincerity that we knew we weren't a project, that can be a really difficult yeah, line, tough, right? Yeah, that's tough. Especially with long-term care that the ward was doing for us. That not feeling like a project, I think comes from those kinds of conversations, from the sincere checking in and how are you? Yeah, and what do you need?
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of it goes back to the just this feeling of I can see a very well-meaning really site present maybe stop by, check in and want to kind of get out of your hair, right? Like mm-hmm. okay, everything's good here. We'll all be back tomorrow, but just to take a breath, sit down on the couch and just have uh-huh. a conversation, that maybe helps avoid this feeling of all right, you know, just give me your checklist because you're our project and we're gonna serve you, right? but right. To, <laughs> but really have a personal connection there for a moment.
3: Right? Yeah. And I think the personal connection is almost as important as all of the service that we received mm. because I needed those check-ins, and so did Chris. He needed people in his elders quorum, to pull him aside and be like, okay, how are you really? But What's really going on? And how are you feeling? And I needed people in Relief Society to do the same. How are the kids? Tell me about it. What's going on? What's stressing you this week? What do you need help with right now? Not long-term, not overall, but what do you need help with this week? What's hard this week? What's mm. hard today? That kind of conversation. Well, that's,
0: those are fantastic questions of just to really dig in a little bit deeper, get through that superficial layer of how are you, right? Because that's mm-hmm. not, that's not far enough,
3: right? No, it's not. And it's too easy to say fine or good, or it's hard right now, but it'll be okay. Or whatever mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. it's too easy to say that. Yeah. That's, we're all programmed to kind of yeah. say that.
0: Did you find you get to a point where you're just tired of asking for help, even yes. though you know, you need it. Like <laughs> explain that. like, what does that feel like?
3: Yes, absolutely. Or when, when the ward would show up and they wouldn't even ask us anymore, they would just start assigning people to take over our yard mm. and we'd get a knock on the door and, oh, can I get the key to your shed so I can get your lawnmower out? Oh, they're here again to do this for, I mean, it's not,
0: you are so but grateful
3: for it, yeah. but oh my gosh, are we after, ever going to not need right, this help? After
0: eight, nine months, you're thinking, <laughs> <laughs> right.
3: Are we ever going to be okay again? Mm -hmm. Just us. Yeah, it gets really difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where almost inspiration comes in. I will say inspiration because there were a lot of things that we never asked for that were not on the beaten path of meals and yard work and and that kind of thing where people just showed up and did things that really were powerful for us, Mm -hmm. but are not on the typical checklist. And so I think that often we sometimes get these ideas. I can't remember the story of the homemade bread from so many conferences ago, right? Mm-hmm. Drive clear out of your way to deliver this loaf of homemade bread, that kind of idea. If you've got that inspiration, if you've got a feeling that you should do something, even if it feels weird, mm-hmm. you probably should do it. Yeah. That's probably what they need.
0: Wow. Wow. So what, what else are we missing with the story? I mean, I, 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 I'm curious... And maybe, I don't know if you have too many insights on this as far as just how the ward went about organizing this. Like was it was, they pass around the list in Relief Society or, yeah. I mean, what role did your ministering <laughs> brothers or sisters play? Anything like that, That as far as the facilitating and organizing on the ward side?
3: They did have lists that they passed around. I know Relief Society and Elder Quorum for different things that we needed, meals and watching the kids or, or coming in and helping. And I have to say it was a little awkward sitting in Relief Society getting a list passed to <laughs> me. How can you help Shanda today? Oh, wow. Yeah. And then passing it on. Um, yeah. but we definitely, they definitely had lists. I know the ward council, we were a huge topic for a long time. And frankly, we, we still are mm-hmm. even just this, this week. Our family got this last week, our family got hit with the norovirus and we were all sick oh, and, no. and here they come from the ward Christmas party with soup and bread rolls and all kinds of stuff. And here you guys need this and <laughs> holy cow. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So do you, get ever, do you get to some points where you, you can, I mean, when do you start communicating to the study You know, I think we're okay on meals. Like I can, yeah. I can cook, I can <laughs> work that in my routine. Okay. Like how do you begin to recognize that?
3: We're just really open, I mm-hmm. think. And that's, that's something that we learned how to do through the process was to just be really open. And it can feel uncomfortable sometimes to be vulnerable, but Mm. I think that's where it really comes down to. And when I felt like I could start taking over, I would have these conversations and they would say, I don't know, are you sure? Mm. Maybe we just cut it back. Maybe you're trying to do too much because you want to let go of some of this help, but maybe you can still use it. Yeah. So we'd have these conversations and a couple times I'd say, no, I think I can do it. Well, maybe we'll just bring you one meal this week instead of two or whatever it was at that yeah. point. Just really open communication.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think establishing that early is probably so important that if having a Relief site present that you're comfortable with, that you can be straight with, right? <laughs> Saying, listen, I really appreciate this, but I don't think we need it. And then she can come back at you. Well, I think you do. Okay. Right. Let's negotiate that a minute <laughs> and figure out how we can help. And then, you know, I just, I don't think the Relief Society things are forever going to help you. I mean, no. maybe as they are currently or as they were early on, but uh, naturally these, these conversations come up with that open communication.
3: Right. And even still, I'm, I mean, even still when we have surgery weeks or something, mm-hmm. we'll get a call or somebody will come into the house and they'll say, okay, so we know this week is going to be tough because you've got this surgery happening or this procedure or whatever it is. And how can we help this week? Mm-hmm. It almost goes back to that same thing. What's tough this week? What can we do this week? Yeah and at some point Chris and I wanted to start giving back. Yeah. You know, we <laughs> we're like, wow, okay, too much receiving, we need to give something. And the thing is we couldn't do it through the same ways. We're 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 barely getting dinner on our own table. We can't necessarily take meals in or that kind of thing. But I think in just allowing us to share what it is that we've been learning and to to talk to people and i think this is where the vulnerability and openness really comes in maybe i can't cook a meal once a week for this family that really needs it but can i talk to them on the phone yeah i can do that mm. can i can i coach them through the hard times that i've just been through mm. as they face their own yeah yeah i can do that and i love to do that and that's something that i can do so i think utilizing us in ways that we can be used. Again, even if it's outside the box, like, could you just call this sister and talk to her because maybe she's really having a hard time and your perspective could help her. Yeah. That kind of thing.
0: I love that. I remember, especially in the Lee ward where we uh, served together that there was so much of this, uh, what do you call it? Like service fatigue or like, cause that mm-hmm. it was an inner city ward. There's some individuals in that ward that just needed a lot of help. Right. And, <laughs> I could like, it was like clockwork. Every new Relief Society president, you were a counselor to many of them, would come in and just break down because they're Uh they're just so overwhelmed with all that's that's needed. But on the other side, you can kind of get this receiving fatigue, like Mm -hmm. the service is great, but I just, where can I give back, right? Right. What can I
3: do? I've got to do something.
0: And so it sounds like Mm -hmm. having the leadership be proactive and finding ways for you to serve, even if it's a phone call, even if it's something you do at home, that, that went a long way for you
3: yeah it really did wow. it really meant a lot to be able to give back somehow, yeah it didn't have to be in huge ways, but to know we were being called on to give back a little bit the in the ways that we could it really it means a lot and and ultimately, I think that when we can be open and we boy did we learn and I felt like we were pretty open people before, but mm-hmm. boy did we learn to be just open book in this situation. And I can't even describe the amount of unity that came from that.
2: I bet. Wow.
3: I mean, I am, we are never moving out of that ward. We, <laughs> we love bet. them. We love them with everything because they just, they constantly gave to us and they still are. Yeah. And as we can give back in the ways that we can, it just, it, our hearts are knit. Wow. We're there forever.
0: Wow, that's and that's and that's uh, oftentimes you know as we as I, I am in mean, the leadership world as it relates to the church and we talk about different concepts. A lot of these quorums and studies go back to you know how can we be more unified? And service is such a valid or a, a, a uh, important factor in unifying a group. Is where can you serve? You know, you may not have a family in your ward going through s- such a traumatic event, but there's somewhere you could serve. Right, that's really making a difference. Right. You know?
3: Well, and I think along with that service, we can't serve people we don't know are hurting, right? Yeah. And a lot of people try to bear it silently and bravely by themselves, but when you let other people in, that really allows for that unity to build mm. in ways that it just can't otherwise Yeah. because you get that interdependence, I think.
0: Yeah, for sure. Hey, what else are we missing? Any other point or story or thought that, that have we we covered the general, I mean, obviously this is a day to day. You're going to write, uh, write the, all sorts of books about these times, but
3: <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like I cover it. I think that's pretty well covered. Okay. Yeah.
0: So any, um, as, as we wrap up, what, any final encouragement you have as far as if you are standing in a room full of leaders that have a, a family or somebody in their ward, what's the general encouragement that you'd give to them?
3: I think my general encouragement is to just sit down with them. And as much as they will let you just talk, talk to them, Mm -hmm. be real encouraging, but don't just get a checklist, check in on them and, and really just get in there. Uh, uh, That's what, that's what they did with us. And I feel like that's really what made the difference is they just kind of showed up and they sat there through the different medical things that we had to do. And they watched the kids through the different things that we had to do. And they just saw with their eyes, what the day-to-day was.
0: Yeah. One more question I have, and this isn't a fair question because I'm bringing Savannah <laughs> and Memphis into it, but uh, as you look back, and even even uh, Lila, as you look back at your the time and focus and love you've given those kids uh, during this traumatic time, which obviously has been even more traumatic for them, how has that made you a better disciple of Jesus Christ?
3: Oh, well, I thought that I knew Christ before this situation. Happened, And I think that I did, but the Christ that I know now and the Heavenly Father that I know now are so much more real than who I knew then, maybe who I had allowed myself to know. And as I have let a lot of the things, (laughs) facade of control and so many other things that I carried melt away and I could actually see them there in front of me. And, and caring for my kids when I couldn't even touch them or hold them. And, and they were, they knew nothing of this life but pain. But I knew that I could trust that it was all for a reason. As I gained understanding and insight into who they are through this experience, it's forever changed me. I just can't go back from that.
0: That concludes my interview with Heather Choate and Shanda Miller. I sure appreciate them uh, sharing such a vulnerable part of their their past and such traumatic experiences. But uh, nonetheless, I hope it blessed the lives of those listening that maybe you, some inspirations and ideas came to mind of how you can maybe serve and minister to those that are going through a difficult time. And even those that maybe aren't going through a time so traumatic, but maybe you could still do something for them, be more present in their life and visit more often and, and just be more relaxed and intentional. In the ways that you minister. And uh, before I sign off, I want to uh, give a shout out to uh, my friend Mark Matheson, who is a former guest of the podcast, and he's done so much for the Leading Saints organization. And uh, he has a project going on 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 Instagram called Scripture Analyst, and then another account called Conference Analyst. And these are just fun ways for you to uh, get a spiritual thought in your Instagram feed. I encourage you to go over and check those out. I believe he's on Facebook as well. So search for Scripture Analyst and Conference Analyst. Both are just one word uh, in Instagram, and you'll find some good content there. If there's anybody uh, you would recommend for a future interview, like I said, we have a ton of options and, and content to consider, but uh, some of the best interviews have come from listeners like yourself sending me an email at leadingsaints.org contact. And uh, from there, we get the ball rolling, connect, interview, and uh, share with the world some fantastic perspective and leadership thought. So go to leading slash contact and I'd love to hear from you. And remember, text the word lead to 474747 and join the core leader community today.
2: It came as a result of the position of leadership, which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought Forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.